0: The most important thing to have in place is belief, but you need to couple that up with a determination as well. You know, these challenges that we face as entrepreneurs and as business people, we, we have to rise to them. So I think that inner determination is as important as anything else.
1: Hello, and welcome to the new and improved Successes in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce. A Pinpoint Media production, this isn't a podcast about the millions, the fast cars, and the large houses associated with so many entrepreneurs. Instead, it's about the barriers, the mistakes, the naivety, and the drive. This is a reality check. What does it take to start a business, and how do you turn your idea into a success? Well, join me to find out from those that are doing just that. Before we get into the show I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has been listening and following this podcast. We found out last week that we've been shortlisted for the Business Media Podcast of the Year as part of the Campaign Publishing Awards 2021. So thank you very much. Keep following, keep rating, keep subscribing and now all we need to do is go out and win the thing. So on today's show we found a creative director, brand innovator and investor Miles Dunkley. Miles' journey into the world of entrepreneurship started in 1995, but the business Miles took over before the turn of the century was founded by his parents Graham and Roberta in 1985. Synlatex, as it was formerly called, undertook an M&A, ultimately rebranding in 1999 to SLG Brands as it's known today. Currently, with some 15 beauty and male grooming brands in its portfolio, Miles has scaled his parents' lifestyle business into something really worth writing home about. Miles, you're in the studio. You're the first guest to join me. Welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's not a long walk down from from your offices, but you know, looking back at the business which you joined in uh, in the late 90s, your parents actually founded this this business. Why did they themselves go into that world and what did they do previously?
0: Well, I think it was probably by accident, if I'm honest. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. I mean, he would he was a sort of global I'd describe him as a global Dell boy in a way. He used to buy <laughs> stuff for a pound and sell it for two pounds. And it didn't really matter what it was. And he, he we saw as, as children, myself and my sister, uh, my father buying um, corned beef, selling tires. Uh, we had uh, heraldic art for sale. All these different things from the house. So he was just buying and selling things basically. And then eventually my mother discovered a, a makeup sponge product to the trade fair and said, listen, I think this is going to be a big thing. And, and she was right. And my my dad pursued that one. But rather than just transacting a single order, it became an ongoing business. And really, that was the genesis, the beginning of uh, what what became SLG. Do you think entrepreneurialism can be inherited? Then, if your parents were serial, your dad was a serial entrepreneur, you're
1: now an entrepreneur, you started off doing uh, working in London, right before you joined the business. Why did you give up your career to join the business, and, and do you think that was simply because you wanted to become an entrepreneur?
0: I always think that entrepreneurs are defined by people who start things, not carry things on. So I sometimes question whether I am an entrepreneur, because I didn't start SLG. I, I, I joined the company Sinlatex as it was in, in in that time. My father... And my mother started the business. But I think it can be learned. It probably is uh, passively, you know, sort of something you, you sort of are influenced by. And before I joined the family business in the 90s, I was modeling in my mind with a with a, a, a business or a colleague from the design agency I was working at to form our own design agency. So I guess we were on the brink of doing something. I was, I was on the brink of doing something myself. But actually then the phone rang and it was my father inviting me to join uh, the family business.
1: And what was the reason that, that, that dad called you up to say, right, Mars, can you come and come and join me? Was it for help? Was it for reassurance? What was the reasoning behind that?
0: I think it was a mixture of things. I think there was a, a feeling, he was at that point in his 60s, I think he was sort of eyeing up retirement They'd had a bit of a good run uh, with the business, but then they lost their biggest client, customer, which was uh, Body Shop. And they felt they lost it through lack of kind of uh, contact with the customer uh, and a lack of resource. And I think that was the trigger point, really, for reaching out to to me and saying, look, you know, would you like to come in as a sort of succession, really, in the business?
1: So you joined the business and they were turning over circa 700,000. And you grew it in four years to 150 staffing with two and a half million turnover. What did you do differently to be able to get it
0: to that point that your parents weren't? I think there was a couple of things at play. There was first of all i I came from a design industry background, so I understood about the power of design in in business, I guess, and so I started to introduce design as a sort of agenda in in our case at that point, it was the design of products rather than brands or anything like that, and that created a momentum straight off the bat but also i was I was kind of Amb- ambitiously seeking growth in a way that uh, perhaps a 30-year-old would, but a 60-year-old wouldn't in, in the form of my father. We launched a, a project to, to buy our, our, our main competitor, bigger competitor, and, and and that was successful. And so that propelled the business forward after that acquisition. In
1: 1999, you acquired Lamborns. Your route to acquisition wasn't really as easy as you might have thought. In fact, it was down to fate, wasn't it, that you actually managed to acquire Lamborns?
0: Well, it's typical, isn't it? You're naive. You don't realise how difficult things are going to be, and that's probably why you do them if you knew how tough they would be, you possibly wouldn't. (laughs) I saw a competitor. I thought, well, let's just buy them. We didn't really have the financial resources to do that. We didn't have the expertise, but we just had, I think, the belief that it might be the right thing to do. And uh, Initially, it was uh, the owner of the company, Kevin Lamborn. He wasn't really interested at all. But then he suffered an illness, actually, within a year or so of us speaking initially, uh, such that he was actually more interested to sell Then he was a similar age to my father. And, and that was really the door opening toward a discussion about acquiring the business, which we did. But it wasn't easy. We were underfunded. They were bigger than us. They were culturally very different. And I didn't realize all those things were important at the time. It was quite hand-to-mouth then when you
1: bought them. How did you keep it going when you did that acquisition? If you didn't have the finances, how did you raise the cash
0: and... I sort of muddled through? We had a bit of cash in the bank, but not enough. We did a number of things. Actually, we, we sold the combined debtors book, so factoring. And, and also we really stored the machinery that was in the, the business we were acquiring. We had nowhere else to go for money, we, but we we scrambled it together. And then what we had as a company we acquired was kind of sliding away a little bit. It was on the on the decline. And so we had to work very, very hard to so sort they of turned that around, and and there was a, a year of extreme graft to do that. Because you took so you took
1: Lambourne's, you had CineTex at the time. You merged the two to become SLG Brands. Mm-hmm. That was that was the sort of
0: birth of what it is today, right? Yes, that's right. So the SLG stands for Synlotech Lamborns Group. So Synlotech acquired Lamborns, creating Synlotech Lamborns Group, and then the acronym is what we now use SLG. Yeah. So we became a sort of um, we were a cosmetic applicator manufacturer. You know, probably at that point the biggest in in, in Europe. Uh, there weren't many of us doing what we did, but we we were certainly the, the biggest, and that gave us a kind of a broader based footing, on which to really begin to I think you know, expand more generally. And and so what I started to do was look further afield for products, not just what we made, because we used to pretty much sell only what we made, and I started to look at sort of international sourcing and supply, particularly out of the Far East, to widen our product range quite rapidly.
1: In 2004, you were gallivanting around the world. You went to South Korea, Thailand, the Philippines. Uh, this was for a sourcing mission. How did you know
0: who and where to go and, and frankly, what you were looking to source? Well, I, I think there was there was an awareness where some of these kind of product areas that we wanted to move into, where they're sort of centre of center of manufacturing excellence would be at the time south korea was where makeup brushes were made uh, the philippines and thailand where powder parts were made and in out of hong kong essentially china but via hong kong is where manicure implements were made and this was the kind of uh, accessory hardware that was a good bedfellow to the kind of products we were making good adjacencies and so uh, I, w- I was aware of that and I just took off on a flight and, and traveled around that part of the world for a while and and, and found those factories and, and established sources of s- supply
1: what sort of issues did you come up against when trying to supply uh, or even procure uh, product from the Philippines and South Korea for instance
0: well when I think back now to what we did to what we now have to do in all in in order to remain up to speed with sort of regulatory control and quality control and good manufacturing practice I, I, I shudder really because I I did it all because there was only myself, my father, my father's business partner and a secretary. Uh, And so, again, it was a lot lot of naivety probably that just uh, said, you know, it's a good looking factory. There's an interesting product collection. Let's bring that into the UK. So it was actually more without proper controls than than with controls that we sort of made those initial moves into broader product areas. Then over time as our business grew, we sort of realised, well we, we need to put quality controls in place. We need to be much more considered about what we do. Now we didn't have any problems, we never had any issues with with product recalls or anything like that. It was it was it was okay. But probably more luck than planning. And then eventually, and and today we have an office in China with with about nine people in it that that manage that for us out in the Far East. So, I mean, just looking at, I suppose, the early
1: stages of the business before we get into the bit where it really started to, to grow into what it is today... How did you and what was the structure like with your dad and your mum and the secretary? I mean, was there pushback from certain people or was it very much Mars is here? Mars is going to do what he needs to do because I want to retire. What was that sort of thought
0: process? Well, it was it was really a case of when I joined the company, uh, my father said, look, OK, look, you crack on. I trust you. I'll be on the golf course, really. <laughs> By this point, my mother wasn't in the company. It was a lady called Pat Topping who was the co-owner of the business, really. And she was running the financial side of the business and the operational side. And they gave me a really free reign. to to, to express myself and I think that was really helpful to allow new fresh blood to come into an existing business and to begin to move into a new direction and so it was it was it was very liberating actually.
1: And and, you know and I mean this with the greatest of respect people will go Miles has been handed a business here Miles has made lots of money because of that right and 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 that isn't isn't the case because you've grown it to what it is today Yes, you got given an opportunity, but you grasped it with both hands, correct? I mean, what barriers in the early, you know, two, three, four years of your journey with,
0: with CineTex at the time, did you come up against that you had to knock down? Well, the first thing to say is you're absolutely right. I was gifted a great opportunity by my parents, and I'm forever grateful for that. What, what then happened was, I think I had something to prove to myself, and maybe that kind of mindset that you described there, that people would say, well, you you were given this, what are you going to do with it? And I had a, a point to prove, and and, and I worked extremely hard. I thought I worked hard prior to that in my (laughs) my design industry career, but it went to a whole different level. And I I had an absolute determination to demonstrate that I was bringing something tangible to the party. But that then quickly became replaced with just a momentum and and, and a sort of vision to to just do things better and bigger than, than we had done before. But I do remember that at the beginning, I had a point to prove. Things really started motoring for you around 2000. In fact, between 2000 and 2015, you were doubling
1: in size uh, every four years. You'd implemented uh, a new uh, plan, design-led strategy.
0: Was this the sort of tipping point? Was this the main thing that actually allowed you to grow? Were there other uh, factors as well? Well, the acquisition of landborns gave us a wider footing. I think that gave us a credibility, sort of foundation on which to work. The broadening of the product range that I described when I went to the Far East and really started to team up with lots of factories out there was another reason. And then then the design thing, and the sort of creative approach that I was really sort of, you know, pioneering, I suppose. I say pioneering, it was all I knew, to be honest. And the more that we employed that strategy, the faster the growth came and the more profitable we became as well. So it became a very straightforward process after that. It then became a case of how do we actually use that for the greater good? And that's been a continuing process a theme in the company culminating really in what the business is today, which is a, a brand portfolio company. And and, exactly, and you've only recently launched, um, and we're sort of scooting ahead a little bit, but you've recently launched
1: a couple of new brands during the pandemic, actually. And what was the process and, th- and thought behind, behind that, bringing it
0: all in-house and focusing on that, I suppose, IP aspect? Yeah. Well, we'd had a long run of kind of doing private label collections for retailers like Debenhams Next, where we were creating product ranges for somebody else. And I think I began to feel that really, we were pretty good at that. And maybe it'd be more valuable to the company if we did that for ourselves, and we owned those brands, and we owned the intellectual property in those brand assets. So we started a while back to move in that direction. And then we started to really amp that up when we sold our manufacturing business in 2018, to concentrate on that own brand portfolio acceleration only to find ourselves in a pandemic at uh, a crucial point in that development process. But we really didn't allow the pandemic to slow up that process of brand launches. And so out of the pandemic, we launched three new brands, all thanks to an amazing team effort at SLG. You know, uh, far from it being my <laughs> my accomplishment, it was the accomplishment of some extraordinary people at uh, my company. But you,
1: having weathered a storm in 2008 with a financial crisis, must have gone into the pandemic with a certain amount of knowledge in this instance, going, OK, so financial crisis wasn't brilliant. OK, the pandemic might stir up, frankly, another issue with recession, etc., we're going to just crack on and we're going to continue to invest in these products? Or did you actually start to draw things back and pull back a little bit on on what you were envisaging
0: on doing? I think you're right. You learned from your prior experiences, 2007, 2008, the financial crisis was a very difficult time for the company. It put us into a flatlined, three years of flatlining after stellar growth. And that to us felt like a fail at that point in time, but we found a way out of that. In fact, we amped up the sort of value-add design approach that we were exploring at that point and that really moved us forward once again. So going into the pandemic, terrifying as it was there was a was always a belief that we would get through that and probably in some way make that work to our advantage right at the point of the, the pandemic breaking we were deeply involved in the development of three new brands which could and probably should have grown to a halt or at least slowed up but it didn't we accelerated them forward And we launched all of them right on the timeline that we originally set out. But was that risky or was that simply because you had the cushion to be able to do such a thing? Because
1: so many businesses will have gone and would have gone actually, that's not for me right now, we're going to keep the cash, cash is king, and we're going to weather the storm, rather than continue to invest. Was it just simply because there was enough liquid there for you to take
0: those punts? There was some liquidity there, but we felt very much we should play you know, the long game here and look for look at that period post-pandemic, whenever that was going to be. I mean, I think we thought it was going to last three or six months, and none of us were aware that it would last the year or well, more. Well, people still think it's it it over, you know, it's still going on. It's, it's, we're not back to normality yet. But if we hadn't launched those brands the sell-in to the UK and American trade was very, very successful. That has given us now the foundations to come out of this pandemic really, you know, very, very strongly, which we, which we now are. So it was absolutely the right decision. But I think... I don't think there was any choice for us. It was yes, one hundred percent. We're gonna we're gonna do this. Yeah, Tra- trading out of a recession is a sporty thing to do.
1: Um, you know, we've similarly done the same thing or we cracked on, and I know a few people that have, and others that have, It it is it is interesting. But from an entrepreneurial point of view, starting a business be it in a pandemic or beforehand, what do you need to have in place to be able to weather a storm like that?
0: Well, I think the most important thing to have in place is belief in a belief that you can get through whatever challenges are in front of you but also practically speaking that's why it's really important I think always to have some kind of uh, liquidity at hand should you find yourself in a difficult position we've always done that as a business always had a degree of of cushion as, as far as we could I think the exception to that was probably when we made the acquisition yes. <laughs> I think we learned from that too so there was always been that cushion that's uh, important but you need to couple that up with a, a determination as well you know, These challenges that we face as entrepreneurs and as business people, we, we have to rise to them. We have to rise to challenges. We have to get through it. No one's going to pull us through it. We have to get through it ourselves, don't we? So I think that inner determination is important as anything else. Are you looking for
1: a PR company that can evaluate your brand profile and execute effective communications? Well, Blox and PR, who work with some of the largest brands in the fashion, field sports and luxury lifestyle sectors, can do exactly that. Developing long-term relationships is at the heart of the Bloxam ethos, combining big thinking with big results. They simply never miss a trick, and they certainly didn't miss a trick, by partnering with us. Check them out at BloxamPR.com. Have you ever woken up in the morning, be it you know, in the last couple of weeks or indeed years, and gone actually, this is not going as well as I'd hoped. And you'd had to pick yourself up and dust yourself down
0: and crack on. And if you have, how did you do that? Yeah, that that, that obviously happens. I can't deny it, that that does happen. But I think it's just a case of looking at the bigger picture. You know, the moment that you're in is always just a moment. And and if you look further afield around that and put it into context, you can usually find the kind of positives that will get you up and out and, and moving forward again, you know. And certainly as a, as a as a sort of leader of a company, mm-hmm. You know, it's very important to demonstrate that sort of positivity to your to your team. I find at my company at SLG that there's a lot of leaders in the company, a lot of people are doing that, and there's a kind of a, a sort of electricity amongst those that that, that are leading that f- kind of fuels everybody's belief actually. And you've got you've got um, joint MDs now in the business, so it's not even as
1: if you're necessarily the front uh, managing director per se. What was the logic behind structuring it in that way and taking that step
0: back? Well, it was a logical thing for me, really, uh, because I had a very, very strong senior management team, and in particular, Lucy Beresford and Richard Buckland, who are now joint MDs of the company, have been with me a very long time, extremely talented, younger than me, ready for the next stage in their career at a time when I, I guess... In my mid-50s, I sort of looking to the sort of broaden my kind of horizons a little bit. I mean, srg is by far my most important thing, clearly. But I, I've, I've got other interests as well. And it, it just kind of was a natural succession, really. The right time for them, the right time for me, and the right time for the company, frankly. You
1: undertook a cash out in 2015, selling a stake of the business to BGF for 10 million. Three years later, in 2018, you sold another uh, minority stake again for
0: 10 million to BGF. And what was the logic behind this? Why did you phase it in such a way? That was twofold, really. I think there was a degree of de-risk for myself or cashing in some of the the, the gains that, that the company had made over a long period of time, remember? This is after 20 or so years of being in a company that I, I pretty much owned. But also to bring in, I think, a new force and firepower into the company in the form of BGF, which is the private equity firm that has come in to own a minority shareholding in in SLG. I should emphasize it's a minority shareholding. I still own the majority of the company and the the controlling rights in the company. But they brought about a huge kind of broadening of our sort of network through their own, they, they, they're invested in uh, 300 companies. They're a, a £2.5 billion fund. And with that comes tremendous kind of access to to professional talent. Yes. And, and that's been really helpful as we continue to scale globally.
1: And who contacted who? Did you contact BGF or did they call you up and go, Mars, I want to buy
0: part of your business? Like, how did that process work? So th- that, that goes back to 2014, really, 15, when SLG was approached uh, by a big trade player, one of the biggest trading companies in the world, actually based out in Hong Kong. Who, who approached SLG to buy the company in its entirety but, oh, really? and, and they put a very attractive offer on the table for a full acquisition. But I, I I didn't want to sell the whole company at all but it just got me thinking about you know sort of what the value of the company was and whether that now was the time to sort of uh, uh, de-risk to a certain extent and my advisors, financial advisors, uh, Hazelwoods, were working with me on this uh, trade acquisition approach and they then suggested, uh, John Lucas there at Hazelwoods, he suggested look, there's this, there's this private equity entity called BGF. I think you should probably talk to them. You can sell a part of your company. You can still remain in control. And BGF's mandate is really just minority ownership, no drag or tag rights to pull you into deals. The patients, long-term investors, why don't you talk to them? And so really it was John Lucas that was the trigger for meeting with BGF. And I was semi-reluctant. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. I I wasn't sure about private equity, but BGF were different, are different. I know that from experience
1: now. And you speak about the advisors. I know that you've got, you know, you you said to me that you've tried to have the best of the best to be able to advise you in the right way. That is so important. But in terms of at what point do you hire and take on the best of the best? And what's that tipping point? Do you invest heavily in them before the business? Or how does that work from a thought process point of view? Because there's an element of cash is king in the business. We don't want to pay people externally just yet.
0: Yeah. So I, I have a very, very clear ideology on this, which I shared with you before, which is that you should never nickel and dime on the key advice areas of finance and legal these kind of areas so I've always done that right back when we bought the Lamborns company and I hired a, a, a legal firm and a lawyer who was probably maybe a sledgehammer to crack a nut in in, in one sense <laughs> Richard Knight of, of Harrison Clark Rickerbys <laughs> he's still my lawyer it's 20 odd years on I wouldn't work with anybody else and he got us a great deal you know and, and whatever we paid him at the time I'm sh- we've made back you know it was a great investment same with financial side of things I-, I think it you have to look at the return on that investment really and say if you pay for great advice it's going to return mm-hmm. so I've done that from a very early stage and I would recommend anyone mm mm-hmm. At an early stage in their business, should be doing the same thing.
1: And you're and you're now looking at uh, going down to four days a week in the business. So you've gone from five to four. Any recently, and you've taken, I suppose, some of that liquid cash, which from the, from the cash out and invested in local business, the union project. You're advising them to a certain extent. Now you've got so much knowledge now that you didn't have then. What would you give? to, I suppose, entrepreneurs listening to this, one piece of advice that they need to take when starting or running a business?
0: Well, I think I would I would talk about, you know, seeking high-quality professional advice to bridge the gap in your knowledge. A bit of naivety is good because it makes you do things you might ordinarily not do. And I think, you know, <laughs> entrepreneurs are very often uh, fueled by naivety, you know, in, the, in, a, in a manner of speaking. But you, you've got to seek quality advice in, in particularly areas of finance, operational structure and legal areas Mm -hmm. and in terms of structuring of of a day really because you've now gone from five to
1: four now are you working that little bit harder because you're over over four days or are you actually taking a little bit of a step back now and going okay i'm going to work the same amount of time over those four days and then reinvest my time into the union project or, or other sort of passion projects that you're you're undertaking and what does that structure look like
0: well, the Friday is the day I, I, I don't work on SLG business, but quite often I do. Uh, yes, exactly. So it's a great deal for the company, actually, that, you know, in, in that regard. You just uh, might be hungover on the Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. When, I, when I get out of bed at midday, you know, I work yes. on SLG things. I very often work on, on the more creative SLG things on, on on that day, as I always have done at weekends and so on. You know it's you know what it's like uh, owning your own company, Oliver. You never switch off, and I and I never switch off on SLG things. But the Friday will be more geared toward uh, work with the union project, the, the fashion retail and e-commerce business that I've invested in and other projects that I have at hand. Every other Thursday, I, I'm not working on SLG things as well, so it's actually essentially three and a half days. But my mind never switches off from SLG, ever. Are you a man of structure then? Do you get up at a certain time in the morning? Do you go to bed at a certain time in the evening? Or do you just take things as they come? No, I'm quite structured, actually. There's a lot of chaos in my life, as there is with, with entrepreneurs and business owners. There's madness all the time, but I need to put that into some kind of structure. So yeah, I'm up at uh, 6.30, 6.45 every day. Uh, I go to bed pretty much at ten, fifteen, something like that. I'm like a little clockwork mouse in that regard. But what goes on in between times can be absolute madness sometimes. How do you because someone said to me the other day that an entrepreneur shouldn't be a sponge. They shouldn't just take everything on. They should actually be a sieve
1: and they should let the sort of things that don't really regard them or need to be you know, cared about filter through. Now how do you filter the correct things and run with the with, with the things that you want to run with?
0: Well, I think a, a lot of it with myself and I'm sure entrepreneurs generally is an intuition mm-hmm. thing, really. Mm-hmm. I have an attraction to certain projects or certain things and, and, and those are the ones that I pursue. And, and in my career so far, the things that I really have enjoyed or the things that really have attracted me to them have usually been the things that have been the most lucrative actually so I tend to follow that like I wouldn't have invested into the union project if I didn't love what they do and have a real belief in what they're doing you know this for me is the motivator and the same with SLG I, I, I'm so proud of SLG I'm so proud of what we've achieved I look at it with huge love and affection and I think that's really important for me so I don't very, I very rarely look at it, think of it just as a financial thing and, and should I do it just for financial reasons that's not how I'm personally wired
1: You're fairly well known in the Southwest for having the largest open plan office around. You pumped three million quid into it in 2019. It is fantastic. But why pump so much cash into an office when
0: most people don't? I felt that that it was an opportunity for us to really underscore SLG as being different to other companies and to really help the company attract the best people, retain the best people. And I think to the outside world looking in, understand that this is no ordinary company. And I thought that was a, we could get a return on that investment. Yes. And in terms of that, I mean, talent is one of the hardest
1: things to attract and retain, right? And it's very expensive to do so. So has it actually made a vast difference? Would you advise people, you know, with hindsight, uh, you know, now, would you go, okay, pandemic
0: offices, do we need them? Don't we need them? pump some cash in what's your thought process now well of course we were in uh studio 19 for mm-hmm. just about a year or so before the mm-hmm. pandemic <laughs> yeah. so we've had uh, as, almost as much time with it in pandemic as, as as out of the pandemic i think the most important asset a company has is its people mm-hmm. and you've as an employer as a company owner you've got to look after your people and you hope that they enjoy and appreciate that. And if they don't, that's fine. If they, if that's not for them and they don't want to work at your company, that's cool as well. But for the amount of time that people spend in your office, in an office environment, I think it's really important. 80,000 hours in your career is roughly what you spend in an office uh, or traditionally. I think that's going to change a little bit of course, post-pandemic yeah. there's a bit more sort of working kind of – it's a new paradigm – that's a lot of time in the office. You've got to make that a pleasurable time for those people who are with you for the period of time that they're with you. Not, you know, Employees don't stay with you forever, and that's absolutely fine. But whilst they're with you, make it the most stimulating and wonderful environment possible. I think that's a responsibility of employers, yeah. and it's very often overlooked. Uh, do you like working from an office? Do you like working from home? What
1: does your structure in that sense look like? Because for me, I, I can, to a certain extent, work from home, but I don't like it. I have to come into the office, and I have to sit here to get the most out of my day, right? Are you the same, or do you quite
0: enjoy working from anywhere in the world? People, electricity, chemistry, I need that. On the most part, people do need that. There is something, I suppose, for some pleasurable about, you know, falling out of bed into your office in in your home, uh, I'm sure. But I think... By and large, it's the interaction with people, especially with a creative company like, like yours, actually, Oliver. And the same with SLG. You, you you need that sort of chemistry and that buzz. Just seeing the office return to life at the moment is just the most incredible thing. You're starting to feel that energy yes. happen. That can't come from everybody working from at, at home and, and, and working on VCs.
1: What does leadership, Miles, look like to you? You've clearly led your business
0: to great things. Did you get training in that or did you just muddle through? I think leading by example, I felt that right from the beginning because I came from being employed. I was employed for 10 years before I was the employer. And I think I learnt, I guess, ambiently from working uh, for, for some great people actually in the past, how inspired I was by their behaviour as, as as leaders. And I think leadership is by example by and large. I think you have to show how you, you feel it should be done mm-hmm. first before you tell anybody mm-hmm. how that is. I think also it's very important to give direction positively, to celebrate success, create a positive kind of momentum in a company. Mm-hmm. I think honesty is very important as well with your team when things are difficult yep. to, to to be honest about that. And we've had to be very honest during the pandemic yes, at yeah, times, but also to demonstrate the belief and very clearly demonstrate the belief that that is if there's challenges that we'll get through them. So Mars there must have been some barriers and mistakes that you guys have come up against over your career in business. What are those, and how did you overcome them? yeah, I think if I go back to so the f- probably thirteen fourteen years. We'd created some of our own brands at that period of time, and we got them listed, we got them launched, but we didn't really understand at that point in time how to invest in them to for continuity and, and long term growth. So they became kind of sort of flash in the pan type brands. But knowing what I now know, they might have been quite successful actually. And we spend a huge amount on marketing, and in, in fact, we spend everything. Everything is returned back into the brand, and and that's the. That's where we're at 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 this present time with seven own brands. We've got – they're across 50,000 stores, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. And and we're investing everything back into them.
1: You're you're into your investments. You've just taken on an investment, or indeed you've given them an investment, Union Project, local business. You are, it seems, wanting to get into this more and more.
0: What is the future for Miles, the investor? Well, I've invested in the Union Project. It's a locally-based company, but it's very much a national entity with its e-commerce side. I'm very interested in what's going on locally, but really what's scalable globally, out of the immediate vicinity, Chatham and Gloucestershire, and so on. As I think I've mentioned, I, I, I am interested in brands and and, and businesses that, that that I find attractive and interesting. Fundamentally, it's not a financially driven consideration, although that needs to be borne in mind because. I wouldn't do it unless it were to be financially successful, but I need it to be something with soul and something with uh, a greater purpose. I think the Union Project's interest in, in, in ethical and sustainable brands in their, their fashion curation was, was really a motivation for me to be involved in that. And we're, we're really enhancing that as we go along the journey with the Union Project. And I'm interested in those types of businesses, really. Is that the typical style of business that you wanted to get involved in? I think it probably is, really. I think um, I, I, I like the, the the sort of smaller stage where I can have an influence, yes. uh, really. If people just want money, yeah. then I'm not really the guy. I, I, I want a couple of money with advice and, and input, really. So, so you're a hands-on investor. Yeah, absolutely. What does success, Miles, look like to you? I think there's probably some financial indices that mm-hmm. will tell you. But for me, probably more important is reputational value. What What do people think about mm-hmm. you outside of the company. What's your reputational value? I mean, I get an extraordinary kick seeing somebody pick up one of S- an SLG brand mm-hmm. off the shelf in the in in a store. That that to me is 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 success. But it's important to reflect back sometimes and we, we, we try and do that in our all staff meetings, you know, for everybody who works so hard, so close to everything, to say, Hey guys, look. Look what we've achieved, you know, and it is nice to reflect back on it sometimes, but, but I think being an entrepreneur is about looking forward, not backwards anyway. So, you know, it's not instinctive to look back and say, gosh, look at what we did. So what's on the horizon? Give it 12, 18 months
1: time. If you come back in here and you'll go, right, we spoke about this, this and this. It's all happened, doubled in size. What's, what's that
0: What's that goal? So we've got some fantastic new brands in play. We've got some existing brands that have broadened distribution hugely during the pandemic. What we're really excited about now is, is seeing those take flight globally, particularly in America, which is now our biggest market. And I love the idea of a Chapman-based business just nailing it in America, and I think we're on the verge of that it's starting to happen, and I and I'm so excited to see in a year or two years time what has happened, and I'm I'm sure it will be about America and our expansion in the states. Very exciting.
1: We'll come back in in 18 months' time and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll raise a point to, to success in the US. But Miles, if people want to find out more about you personally, about your investments or about your brand SLG, how and where can they go?
0: Where will you find information such as well, LinkedIn? I, I'm, I can be approached on there. I've got a for a 54-year-old, quite a lively Instagram account. It's good. There's some excellent photos on there. It's almost like you know what you're doing. Well, that's why. Right. <laughs> it's all fluke. The, the lens into, into my world, I guess, is Instagram and LinkedIn. That is very good. Well, Mars. thank you ever so much for, for popping into the studio. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for letting me tell my story.
1: If you're looking for more stories from inspirational entrepreneurs, then check out The Serial Entrepreneur from Startups Magazine, a digital and print publication that champions tech startups. You can find them by searching The Serial Entrepreneur, as in your breakfast, into any streaming service or by going to startupsmagazine.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on all major podcast streaming platforms. Without you, this podcast is literally pointless. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts so that we can continue to climb the rankings. And if you want to join me on the show or know somebody else who will fit the bill, please contact me via LinkedIn at Oliver Bruce online. Thanks again for listening. Take care.